Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $198 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. If climate change has not already been high in your newsfeed lately, it likely will be later this fall. The conference that brought us the Paris Agreement in 2015 is meeting again in November in Glasgow, where the 26th UN Conference of Parties, better known as COP26, will seek to accelerate action to fight global warming. The goals of COP26, such as lowering emissions and mobilizing climate financing, intersect in many ways with those of ClearBridge's ESG integration practices. And we are excited to see topics ClearBridge regularly addresses with portfolio companies take center stage as governments increase their focus on climate change. In today's podcast, The Road from COP26 to Net Zero, I'm joined by Dimitri Dayan, Senior Analyst for Energy, and Rob Busing, Senior Analyst for Consumer Staples. Together, we'll look to better understand where we are in the fight against global warming, give an update on new technologies that can help end that fight, and see what companies, including traditional energy companies, are doing to speed the energy transition. I should add, we also give a detailed look at what ClearBridge portfolio companies across many sectors are doing to help advance the goals of COP26 in our third quarter ESG program commentary available at clearbridge.com where you can read and download a copy. So, Dimitri, Rob, thank you so much for joining me in the virtual booth. It's great to have you both back. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And we're embarking uh, on the 26th Climate Summit of the UN over the last three decades. It's quite a big deal. Quite an A-list of celebrities join this climate conference. You have Queen Elizabeth. You have the Pope. You have many of the heads of states of major nations. It's basically what Davos is for economic and political challenges for climate change. So, Dimitri, I want to start off with you, and maybe at a very high level, how are we doing as a global economy on the Paris Agreement? What type of achievements have we made? And, and maybe more importantly for the future, what are you expecting to come out of the 2021 meeting later this month? The Paris Agreement's goal was really to keep warming substantially below two degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels, which means getting to net zero by 2050 in terms of carbon emissions. But what Paris didn't do was to specify the actual steps that individual countries must take in order to meet this goal. Which brings us to COP26. Leaders all over the world are going to Glasgow, as we all know, and they will outline specific actions that they'll plan to take to actually get towards this net zero goal, or at least move closer towards it. They'll also agree on some rules that will govern the Paris Agreement that will make it more enforceable and more actionable. But these commitments will then become jumping off points for setting policy and regulations that the governments can then bring back home in order to actionize or make these commitments real. So next month, what are we looking for in terms of actions that need to be taken to get us to closer towards this substantially below two degree target? I think a few things are worth highlighting. One is there should be substantial progress made at the meeting on phasing out financing for coal plants internationally. We actually still have coal plants in both today. We should expect some targets for ramping down methane emissions, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. We also could see some agreement on global targets for ending the sales of internal combustion vehicles. 
and probably more clarity on the role of hydrogen in some of these tough to decarbonize industries. I would also expect to see some discussion on curtailing deforestation and encouraging investment in renewables, of course. So all this is going to be a step forward towards decarbonization. But, you know, I would caution that the rubber meets the road really in how these goals are translating to specific actions domestically. That means regulations, taxes, incentives, which can be tricky to actually implement at home. It certainly isn't going to be a smooth transition. Obviously, one of the reasons for the electricity reduction in China is phasing out of coal, the increase of coal prices. And as you mentioned, regulations, taxes, uh, incentives, they tend to be more expensive and it could really tax some growth. So it's not surprising that uh, we haven't necessarily hit the standards that were set out back in the Paris Agreement in 2015. Now, Rob, I want to talk about your area of coverage because it has a number of different touch points within climate change, which is consumer staples and consumer durables. And in looking at the COP26's goals, and the first one is really speeding up the move to electric vehicles, which is an important driver. I think it makes up about 7% of global greenhouse emissions. And, you know, obviously, we've been talking about EVs or electric vehicles for a long time, but are EVs really making a dent at this point? I mean, I do see the occasional Tesla drive-by, but from from my vantage point here in New Jersey, I, I do see quite a bit of internal combustion engines when I'm just moving around town or, or going to different cities. So how far along are we in that process? And, and maybe more importantly, are there any interesting names that you're seeing in this space as we make the transition? Hey, Jeff. Uh- Great questions. So, yeah, I, I would agree. I think electric vehicles certainly seem to have a very high mind share among, among the media and a lot of discussions. But the unfortunate answer so far is that electric vehicles are still really just a small drop in the ocean in terms of the number of cars on the road globally. Europe and China are the global leaders and the U.S. is actually quite a bit of a laggard. But things are changing pretty quickly, and I, I do expect that change to continue to accelerate. So just to put some numbers around this, you know, there's about 275 million registered vehicles on the road in the United States. A little under 2 million of those are pure plug-in electric vehicles today per the uh, International Energy Agency. So that's a little less than 1%. However, in terms of new vehicle purchases, about 3% of new vehicles purchased are pure electric vehicles in the U.S. You can see that's kind of slowly changing. In some other markets, uh, especially China and Europe, Government mandates and incentives have helped accelerate that transition actually to be quite a bit faster. About 6% of new vehicle purchases in China were electric, and actually about 10% in Europe, with uh, you know Norway kind of being the big call out. Almost, I think it's about 85% of new vehicles purchased there are electric because there's just massive government incentives uh, favoring electric vehicles in that country. But wow. I mean, still, you're thinking about a global automotive fleet of something like one and a half billion vehicles. So there's a pretty long way to go before EVs become mainstream. But I did mention, you know, I think I'm pretty confident this trend is going to accelerate. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit why I think that. So first of all, it's just the number of choices in electric vehicles is, is really going parabolic over the next few years. And that's going to give consumers a lot more options in, in terms of what kind of electric vehicle to purchase, whereas right now there's there's a fairly limited uh, selection set, particularly in the United States. And secondly, perhaps you know more importantly, the cost curve for electric vehicle manufacturing, which has particularly been bottlenecked by the high cost of the batteries, has been really falling quite significantly over the past few years. And at the same time, manufacturing an internal combustion engine has 
continue to get more expensive because you have to keep adding more emissions technology to those vehicles. So we're now kind of actually reaching the point of cost parity for you know, manufacturing EVs at scale. So if you think about your upfront cost, you're already kind of at a point where the upfront cost of a new electric vehicle is pretty much approaching the upfront cost of an internal combustion engine vehicle. And that favorability is compounded by the fact the maintenance costs for EVs are quite a bit lower, you know, many, many fewer moving parts and your energy or your fuel costs um, are also quite a bit lower. I mean, just from a kind of technological perspective, it's worth really noting that even the best internal combustion engines can convert only about 40% of their fuel into mechanical energy, and that compares to about 85% for, for an electric motor. That's a really substantial structural technology gap. So when you when you kind of combine that fact that the upfront cost is the same and the ongoing cost is that much more compelling, I mean, it's, it's driving a, a pretty superior value proposition for consumers, and that's widening every year. So, I mean, I think what's going to start to happen, it's going to become very obvious to consumers where the market is going and where we might start to see an S-curve type of adoption happen within EVs. And you're actually seeing that from the OEM side as well. I mean, many of them are you know, kind of throwing in the towel on the internal combustion engine with, with their public targets over the long term and pivoting really hard to EVs. Uh, just yesterday at their investor day, a GM indicated that over half of their new vehicle launches would be fully electric by 2026. So in terms of stocks of interest, you know, besides kind of the obvious names like Tesla, I do think some of the incumbent OEMs are much better positioned here than others and traded considerably more attractive valuations. Uh, I just did mention GM. I would highlight them as well as Volkswagen, both of which were really uh, among the early leaders among the incumbent OEMs. Um, at creating a vertically integrated EV production model, kind of purpose building a new vehicle from the ground up instead of actually kind of trying to put an electric motor on an already existing internal combustion engine platform. And they have a large number of EV launches planned. I do think battery cells are going to be a pretty significant bottleneck in the early stages of the EV transition. I mean, the number of batteries needed to, to power this, uh, the, the total vehicle fleet is orders of magnitude higher than we're producing today. So the OEMs that do have a foothold in battery sourcing and their own battery production, I think, does provide a, a pretty significant advantage. And then outside of the OEMs, I think there's some of the tier one auto suppliers, which are pretty well positioned for this transition. Uh, I would highlight Active very well positioned with uh, in terms of their uh, electric powertrain business. As well, I'm sorry, their, their wiring business, as well as Lear. They both have pretty good positioning in high voltage wiring and electronic systems. Uh, for which there's considerable content growth expected in electric vehicles. Active also has a very strong active safety kind of assisted driving business. So they, they play off that trend as well as, as we sort of work, you know, add more autonomous capabilities to our vehicles. And then Lear, the, the rest of their business is in seating, which although not a secular grower as, as we transition to electric vehicles, people still need a place to sit no matter what the powertrain technology is. So it's something that's relatively protected through the powertrain transition. You know what, Rob? You've sold me on EV. I was actually very interested in your answer to this question because, uh, believe it or not, I was a victim of climate change. Uh, I got hit by Hurricane Ida here in New Jersey. I lost two vehicles in the market currently looking, and I was wondering whether I was going to go with an EV or an internal combustion engine. And given the lower cost of ownership, it does appear that EVs seems to be an easy choice. But uh, in, in keeping with the theme, Dimitri, I know obviously electric vehicles get a lot of attention, as do the other renewables that we've been hearing about for decades, which is solar and wind. But 
I know that you talk about a lot of technologies that investors should be aware of that also could move the, the needle down on, on lowering emissions. Are there any of them that are, are really interesting to you at this point? Definitely. But I will say that wind, solar, EVs get a lot of attention because those technologies are inherently just more mature. You know, wind and solar LCOE has fallen below that of new natural gas plants, which has really accelerated their adoption, accelerated the growth in those in, in those technologies and the investment that's going into them. And that's great. But a lot more needs to be done if we're going to fully decarbonize society. I like to cite the estimate that as much as 45 percent of all technologies needed to reach net zero haven't actually been commercialized yet. Think about that. Wow. But, but that's actually really exciting for us as investors here at ClearBridge, right? Because it tells us that the energy transition will be full of innovation, full of disruption of existing ecosystems. Tremendous amounts of capital will be needed not only to grow wind, to grow solar, EVs, as Rob just said, but also to invest in these new technologies. As much as $100 trillion over the next 30 years may be needed to get to these net zero targets. So what are we watching? I'll start with biofuels. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking about renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuels. We're seeing traditional refining oil and gas companies investing in technologies quite heavily now. Also, I would highly renewable natural gas, which is getting a lot of the attention here in the United States. I'd be remiss not to mention green hydrogen, which does look very promising early on, but it is a promising technology. Hydrogen Council estimates that it could be as much as 18%, of global energy can come from hydrogen by 2050. So applications would be primarily in tough to decarbonize sectors such as bus, truck, rail, marine applications. I'd also highlight carbon capture technologies. So if you look at the even the most optimistic projections from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the UN scientific body informing COP26, all of them rely on carbon capture to get to net zero. The emphasis is on net zero. We're not talking about getting to absolute zero. We'll be living with at least some carbon emissions for a very, very long time, which is why carbon capture technology is so important. And finally, you know, before I wrap up the answer to this question, you know, let's mention some of the more well-known technologies. I'm referring to energy efficiency products. So these are things such as electric chiller and heating systems, building window insulation, and um, the energy efficient appliances, motors, LED lights. So the combination of all these technologies will be needed over the next 30 years as we get on this journey to, to net zero by 2050. One of the things that I think is interesting, what we do at ClearBridge from an ESG perspective, is we don't necessarily black out an industry or say it's uninvestable. And I Energy is obviously a pure example of that. And Dimitri, I want to stay with you for a second and talk about what you're seeing with traditional energy companies, like, for example, oil and gas production and exploration. I mean, how are these companies starting to adapt to this inevitable transition to going to, to net zero by 2050, hopefully? And definitely taking up a lot more of the conversation with traditional oil and gas companies, this energy transition and move to net zero for sure. But they definitely do have a role to play. I mean, methane emissions are very high on the ESG agenda. Methane is 25 times more impactful to global warming in the near term than, than CO2. Wow, that's a lot. Conoco, Pioneer Natural Resources are really leading on this issue, I think. Other companies are as well, but they have, you know, Conoco and Pioneer have really been out there uh, leading on the fact that the industry does need to address these. 
So I would not be surprised to see industry standards or government regulations accelerating the phase out of things such as flaring of gas, but also fugitive methane. And then there is there are other energy companies like those in Europe who are investing more heavily in wind and solar. Total, for example, is investing in EV batteries. We're also seeing a lot of just soul searching in the industry of finding ways for oil and gas companies to identify and leverage their competitive advantages to make some of these energy transition investments. I've already mentioned production of um, renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuels, renewable natural gas are pretty high on that list. Carbon capture is also very widely discussed, both in energy companies' own emissions, addressing their own scope on scope two, but also for commercial purposes, making it into a business. To that end, U.S. Congress is looking at increasing the 45Q tax credit to as much as $85 a ton from $35 to $50 a ton today. This is a bipartisan proposal, by the way, one of the very few uh, in Congress these days. Um, In Europe, carbon uh, markets are more mature, they're trading. And so you're seeing carbon prices at 60 uh, 60 euros per ton. So at these values, you're actually approaching a place where carbon capture can be done economically and can actually become a business for these companies, which would be a a significant change in just the overall business profile. But, you know, don't forget green hydrogen. I mentioned it before, but I want to come back to it. If we are to achieve very wide adoption of green hydrogen, it's effectively just going to become another globally traded commodity, be put on ships in form of ammonia, liquid hydrogen can go on pipelines. It can look a lot like LNG does today. So Air Products is not an oil and gas company, but it is developing the first ever mega project to make green hydrogen and neom in Saudi Arabia. And that can become a, an important model for the majors, given the large scale of investment going to a project like that. And APD is investing $5 billion. So that could potentially become a large business for the majors, kind of similar to how we think about LNG today. Yeah, that, that sounds like quite the opportunity. Hydrogen stocks have been uh, at a little bit of a reset lately, but uh, it does sound like this. they certainly have the potential for a, a secular trend over the next couple of decades. Now, I want to switch gears here for a second, and I want to go to one of the other goals of COP26, which is goal three. It's to protect and restore ecosystems and build resilient agriculture. Obviously, Rob, this is an area that I'm sure comes up in your daily conversations uh, with food companies. What are they saying? And maybe more importantly, you know, what sort of advances are being made in this regard? Yeah, I would use the the buzzword regenerative agriculture, which you know I think is is kind of a hot topic right now around this area. And it looks actually quite a bit more important as we witness the various you know product uh, component shortages that we're seeing around the world you know, kind of driven by a mix of supply chain disruption and more extreme weather events. So I guess I'll say it's not entirely agreed on exactly what regenerative agriculture means. So I'll use the definition uh, from Regeneration International, which is farming and grazing practices that help, among other benefits, reverse climate change by rebuilding soil organic matter and restoring degraded soil biodiversity. Practices could include no or minimal tilling of the soil, planting cover crops, crop rotation, applying compost, and kind of managing your grazing um, to sort of let stuff recover over over a period of time. I think, you know, big picture, the idea is together these practices serve the purpose of keeping the soil healthier and more conducive to growing crops in a sustained way over many years, as opposed to kind of short-term maximizing output 
but in the process, you know, slowly destroying the soil and having the yield fall over time and kind of leading to ultimately a worse outcome. This also has the additional benefit of creating a carbon sink. So, I mean, you, if you have more plant matter literally alive within the soil, that, that just creates a greater storage sink for additional CO2 out of the atmosphere. So, you know, big food companies like PepsiCo, Nestle, General Mills, and Cormac have all recently called us out as a focus area for them. And I think the, the challenge with it is, you know, a lot of their supply chain, the agricultural side is, is like smallholder farmers, you know, farmers that have like a, a small farm that's under five acres in size. So you have to educate these farmers on the practices and, and just as importantly, convince them that it is in their economic best interest to do these practices. So whether that involves paying a more or some form of incentivization is, is a crucial part of the equation as well. So I'd say there's a lot of encouraging commentary so far on the receptivity, these types of things. I mean, I think it's it's being portrayed as very much a win-win, right? It's better for the farmer over the long term. It's better for the company if they have a reliable supply chain and it's better for the environment. Um, so, you know, everybody's kind of happy about it. I would say that it's like a little hard externally to see how successful this has been thus far, but it is clearly a big focus area. So probably more to come on this topic. Now, I've read a statistic recently that agriculture creates about 25% of, of global emissions through, you know, agriculture, forestry, land use. Obviously, this is going to be crucial in reaching, you know, net zero, if you will. I also had a, another statistic about one quarter of the land on Earth is used for meat production. These are massive numbers. I mean, Dimitri, where are these emissions coming from an agriculture standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. Agriculture is certainly a very large part of emissions that sometimes gets overlooked. But the biggest source of emission in agriculture is the carbon dioxide and methane produced by livestock due to essentially food digestion. There is also emission from um, from manure and from equipment that is effectively used in the field. Now, some estimate that these three factors represent as much as two-thirds of the emissions associated with agriculture. In addition, the use of fertilizer also results in CO2 emissions, as does the impact of deforestation in certain parts of the world. As Rob just mentioned, our trees and oceans, uh, they're the natural carbon capture and storage mechanisms known as sinks. So to the extent that they're not preserved and, and, and nurtured, the Earth's natural CO2 absorption capability is going to be reduced. So obviously this this begs the question, right? And I'm going to kick it back over to Rob on this one. Is hard natural our plant-based foods a solution to the agricultural emissions that that we have right now? You know, how are stable companies addressing this and is consumer preference changing at all? I mean, should we all be eating impossible burgers and drinking almond milk to help reduce our footprint? What do you uh -huh. think, Rob? Yeah, well, plant-based foods are unquestionably helpful for reducing emissions broadly. I'll start with plant-based milks, which are probably the most advanced in terms of the category development. I think plant-based milks in the U.S. are something like 11% of the uh, milk category now. You know, you asked about emissions, but I would also note that there's a lot of different variables that drive the total environmental impact, and emissions aren't the only factor to be aware of here. And the overall impact can vary quite widely depending on the plant substrate. So, Almond milk, as you mentioned, for example, has you know significantly lower direct emissions by dairy milk by a pretty wide margin, as you'd expect, because almonds don't you know create a lot of, a lot of emissions the way cows do. So that, that's a pretty obvious one. But the water usage of almonds is actually pretty significant. 
Uh, it takes about three gallons of water just to grow one single almond through its growth cycle. And furthermore, about 80% of almonds are grown in California, where you may have heard there's a fairly severe water drought that's been going on in the state for, for actually, it's kind of fluctuated over a period of many years. But right now we're kind of back in that more extreme drought condition. So, you know, definitely some puts and takes on that. I would highlight oat milk, which does solve some of these problems. It kind of has similar, you know, overall emissions as, as almond milk. Um, and oats are also quite easy to grow in essentially anywhere in, in very, very variable growing conditions, which means you can grow them most importantly in non-water stressed areas. That's the most important factor. And, you know, I think the emissions number, I don't know if I said this, but something like 80% lower than dairy milk, which is pretty comparable to what almond milk is. So it's a kind of a best of both worlds. And then there's a consumer element too, which is, uh, you know, the superior taste. And there has been consumers gravitating towards oat milk, replacing their almond milk and soy milk. And, you know, Europe has been kind of the leader in this where, where that category is, is more advanced. And that, that has helped us get interested in Oatly as, as a potential uh, stock idea, as one of the pioneers of this category. Can, can I just jump in there real quick for one second? Sure. Yeah. I wanted to touch on that. It's a great point that, that Rob is making. So people generally talk about water shortages as, as an outcome of climate change, but it's also an important contributor. So what we're seeing is that droughts are resulting in uh, reduced electricity generation from hydro, which is zero emission, of course. And instead, that increases reliance on coal and natural gas plants. So this is actually one of the factors driving the current spike in global gas and LNG prices, especially in Europe and in Asia. There is drought conditions in Latin America, and LNG is being pulled in to run gas plants because hydropower generation is effectively reduced. So, you know, in a lot of people's minds, we're talking about droughts as, as sort of something that ha happens because of climate change. But I think that needs to shift to being kind of a self-feeding mechanism that then also generates increased emissions and then accelerates climate change. Yeah, great, great point. Just on the, the actual plant-based meat side, of course, taste is a really critical variable in getting plant-based foods to appeal beyond the vegetarian and vegan consumer into the broader population who also likes meat. Because, you know, vegetarians and vegans only make up about 5% of the U.S. population. On that point, we, we fortunately do have some data suggesting that a lot of omnivores are trialing the plant-based food offerings, particularly plant-based meats. Some survey data suggesting that anywhere between 75 and 90% of the people who have tried plant-based meats are not, in fact, vegetarian or vegan. So that's a pretty exciting development. It does suggest that they're getting real traction with you know, omnivore consumers, which are the vast majority of the population. Ultimately, I think what this reflects is there are a lot of consumers out there that would prefer not to eat animal-based protein for many reasons, whether that's environmental impact, animal welfare, personal health, etc. But the consumers don't want to sacrifice taste and have a, you know, a soybean cube or whatever it is instead of a burger. And that's, that's just a harder sell. So when you get a product that is quite compelling, that it tastes and feels like a burger and, and kind of has that substitute where people don't feel like they're making a sacrifice on taste, there's a very wide audience for that. So I think once they're really successful in, in getting that, the sky's the limit for these products. Sky's the limit. I love it. And, and I think that's a perfect note to end on. Dimitri, Rob, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy days and educating us not only on the importance of COP26, but also what the path forward potentially looks like in order to successfully get to 
global net zero emissions by mid-century. Thank you for Absolutely. Me. And thank you to all the listeners that have joined us for this podcast. I hope you all have a very safe and more importantly, a very healthy October. And I hope you continue to join us through the rest of 2021. As always, we welcome any comments, questions, and suggestions, which you can email us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of October 7th, 2021, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.